said, uh, did his first run, five laps or something, came in and he, he just sat there, silent in the car. He just looked stunned. And he just said, this car is gonna be effing quick. <laughs> Domination. That's what Steve Nichols engineered for McLaren in 1988. Steve designed a rocket, a red and white wonder car called the MP44. In 16 races, it took 15 wins, 10 of them won two finishes. At the second race of that season at Imola, the McLarens finished a lap ahead of everyone else. That's a lap ahead of the driver in third place. In qualifying, the car took 15 pole positions, often several seconds ahead of the next fastest cars. It was domination on a level which had never been seen before in Formula One and hasn't been seen since. Welcome everybody to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson, and legendary designer, Steve Nichols. The MP44 was so much better than the other cars in the field, and Steve can tell us its secrets. When one team's car is that strong, only that team's drivers have a chance of winning the world title. Teammates become championship rivals, and in 1988, Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost fought a ferocious campaign against each other. And as Senna's race engineer, Steve was right in the middle of it. He's got some eye-opening stories about what happened when these ultra-competitive teammates sat together in a room during that 88 season. Steve's story is intertwined with those two drivers. He followed Prost to Ferrari, and he recalls the difficulties of trying to restore the Scuderia to winning ways. At the 1990 Japanese Grand Prix, Steve saw up close how far Senna was prepared to go to beat his great rival. He also tells tales of working with Nicky Lauda, Mika Hakkinen, and David Coulthard. I hope you enjoy hearing from one of Formula One's greatest designers. Steve, it is lovely to see you. We're in a country pub near McLaren in the UK. Your old home, really, just down the road, isn't it? Yeah, not too far away at all. Both both my home and McLaren are uh, just a couple of minutes down the road, really. Now, you spent more than two decades at the forefront of Formula One, roughly 1980 to 2000, just generally speaking. Yeah. Which era was the most enjoyable for you? The most enjoyable for me was probably from say uh, 1986 onward which was when i became more uh, in control of the design function you know john barnard had gone off to ferrari and i became chief designer and sort of worked those last uh, four years at, um, at mclaren and then carried on to to ferrari and came back and did another stint at mclaren and, and you know that was all exciting times and I mean, if you take it, I suppose it doesn't get much better than, uh, you know, 1987, I spent designing the MP44, and then 1988, racing it and developing it and, and helping uh, Ayrton Senna to win his first world championship. Was that 1988 season the highlight of your career? 15 out of 16 wins? <laughs> or, or do, you, or do yeah. you still get annoyed thinking, damn, I wish we had, you know, got, got them all? Well, yeah, I know. It, it was quite a highlight. And to be that dominant and work with a very good car and with a very good team of people and two excellent drivers, you know, you just couldn't sort of 
write a better script, I suppose. Uh, so yeah, it was in inevitably a, a, a big highlight and a tremendous uh, period of time. I mean, all of Formula One, you know, it is very stressful. And, you know, working at McLaren and running up front and trying to win races and trying to win championships and you're dealing with legendary drivers and you're aware of their status and you don't want to screw up their world championship, you know, that sort of thing. It's, it's interesting. I know recently in discussion with a group of, of old boys from McLaren that were there at the time, one of the mechanics, Rick Goodhand, he was saying, we knew that the drivers were good and we knew that the car was good and we knew that if there was a screw up, it'd be us screwing it up. So they were <laughs> always on their toes trying to make sure that the car was perfectly prepared. Now, we're going to come on to Senna and Prost, the two drivers you're talking about in a minute. But can we start by talking about the car, the MP44? Were you surprised by its level of dominance? I was a little bit. It was a very intense period. You know, we didn't really... I mean, I'd been thinking about what I wanted to do. Having having designed the MP4-3, then you think, well, what will I do for a follow-on? But uh, So I'd thought a lot about it, but I didn't want to get into the design of it until we knew what engine we were going to use, which wasn't until August. When is, we is that quite late in the day? Oh, it is, yeah. Because you've been using be, the TAG Porsche yeah, in the 87 yeah. car, hadn't you? I'd have preferred to be much more into it in April, say, instead of uh, August. So it, it began a very intense period from August until we needed to arrive at Imola for that first first test. So it was a, a lot of intense work, a lot of late nights. And I, I don't know, but I, I, I loved the pressure. You know, it, uh, I seemed to thrive on the pressure. It made it feel like it was something important. It mattered to you. And how much better was the Honda Turbo than the Tag Porsche Turbo? Well, it, it was quite a lot better. It was a very well-developed engine. You, you know, it had been running for years uh, in a Williams, uh, in a Lotus, even in a Spirit, you know. So it probably had five or six years of development by the time we got our hands on it. So perfect situation. You know, you compare that to when McLaren started again with Honda recently and they sort of expected instant results. And I was thinking it's a much more complex engine. Uh, it took them five or six years to get up to speed previously. And so why would you expect that in one year they're going to be right on the pace? So, And compared know. to the other turbos out there, what did it have? It had what more grunt, more power than... Well, it the wasn't. Ferrari, for example. Uh, it, it wasn't hugely powerful. You, you know, uh, we were so restricted. You have to remember they'd restricted us to two and a half bar boost, restricted us to 150 liters of fuel. They'd given the normally aspirated cars, I think, a 20 kilo weight advantage as well. Uh, it was a mixed year where they were introducing the normally aspirated three and a half liters. They wanted the normally aspirated cars to win. That was the future. So we kind of spoiled the party by uh, by dominating, really. And it was a combination of very good drivability, very good fuel economy, you know, and, uh, and, and a reasonable amount of horsepower. We probably had 600 to 620 horsepower in And what in about races. qualifying, though? Qualifying a little bit more, but we never worried a lot about qualifying because we were able to dominate qualifying as well as, as the racing, so we didn't need to try to turn the boost way up. 
we'd be always trying to develop a race setup, you know, how much boost, how many revs, what sort of thing can we do to win the race. Um, and we were doing all the sort of stuff they do now, you know, uh, trying to make the fuel last for the race distance. You know, lift and coast, restrict the revs, restrict the boost, anything you needed to do to, to finish the races. And sometimes we'd go into fuel debt, so to speak. You'd find yourself two laps down on fuel because you'd been racing the normally aspirated cars and then towards the end of the race you're thinking, oh, you know, we've got to get that fuel back. We, we need to get better fuel economy now so that we can finish the race. Let's bring the drivers in now then. We're talking Alain Prost and Ayrton Senna. Who was better at the economy in the races? Who was the more economical driver? I would say, you know, Prost might have been a tiny bit more economical, but uh, Senna was really good at, you know, he's good at everything. And he'd go out to do a long run, for example, in testing. And, um, you know, he'd, he'd, you could see he'd be changing things. He'd use different revs and he'd use different boost and that sort of thing. And when he'd come in after a run, he'd tell you the sort of fuel economy figures he got versus lap times and you know, what boost he was using and all of this sort of thing. So he was, he was well into it. And, uh, and as you would expect, Senna being Senna, you, you know, he, he wanted to optimize uh, his situation in any way that he could. And, and Prost, uh, very similar, you know, very competitive. And maybe his style wasn't quite as aggressive as, uh, as Senna, but he was an incredibly good driver. And he was such a decent bloke as well. You know, he was just... He was just an ordinary guy in every way, except he was freakishly good at driving a, a race car. Which one of them? Prost. Prost. Senna, maybe a little over the top. I have visions of uh, him in a Formula 3 car parked on top of uh, Brundle, for example. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was uh, win or bust sometimes. Some of the antics he got up to, with he was pretty harsh on his competitors. Now, Steve, which of those two drivers held the advantage coming into 1988 because it was seen from the outside as Prost's team. Ayrton Senna was new to McLaren, but he had experience of the Honda engine from his time at Lotus. So That's right. who held the advantage? Yeah, I think it was really pretty evenly matched. Prost was more in tune with the team, having been there a few years. And uh, Senna, of course, was new, but obviously very, very good. And, and he was really in tune with Honda, not not just the engine, but the people as well. So I, I would say that it, it balanced out quite well. And right from the off, you know, they were extremely competitive, very closely matched, you know, there's never, well, hardly ever a lot between the two of them. Maybe a little bit of a qualifying advantage to Senna and, and on occasion that gap was quite big. Monaco, for example, he, he just pulled that lap out, you know. Was it was it one and a half seconds? I think something like something that. Something insane. And it wasn't like that, yeah. it wasn't one and a half seconds quicker than some plonker. It was <laughs> one and a half seconds quicker than Brass, which is just yeah, otherworldly, really. And can you remember what the guys said at that first Imola test? How quickly did you realise? that you had an absolute beast underneath you? Well, it, it was right away. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of my memories of that thing. It, it had been such an intense period from August until that test. And uh, I hadn't really had the time to sit down and think, is this car going to be 
any good or not, it, you know, and of course we were hoping for the best, but we arrived at Imola then uh, late in the evening, the test followed the next day, and and there was some bigwig from, from Honda there, very stern sort of guy, and we met in the lobby at 11 o'clock at night, and he said, uh, so tomorrow we find out about this wonder car of yours. And I thought, what the hell are they expecting? You know, what sort of story has Ron been selling them? You know, so yeah, I started to worry then about what the next day was going to bring. So we start off the test, and we did the, the we did the usual thing where they go out and do a, an installation lap. And as usual, the, who drove first? Prost did. Uh, you know, he was the established team member. So he did the installation lamp, and there was nothing wrong, and there never was. You know, the mechanics were always so good. I don't remember ever having a problem on the installation lamp, but anyway. So then I said to him, maybe just do... You know, I was worried about mechanical problems or any one of a hundred things that could happen. And so I said to him, maybe just go out and do five gentle laps, and we'll have another look. So he went out, did five gentle laps, came in, they had another look, nothing wrong, put some fuel in the car, and... I just thought, well, this is it. I'm out of excuses. So I said, uh, all right, have a go. Uh, so it was the old Imola where there was a fairly tight chicane at the head of the pit lane. And, and he came around the right-hand part of that chicane and just buried the throttle and disappeared out of sight off to the legendary Tamburello. <laughs> so, and I had my... Uh, Heart in my throat a little bit, hoping that everything was going to be all right, and and it was immediately fast, you know, and well balanced, and we made a few little minor changes, but it was just kind of what was no his problems. first comment to you when well, he came back into the pit? He he, he said, yeah, he, you know, he just said, yeah, yeah, it's it's good, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, maybe we can make a little change, and we we did two or three. Uh, runs where we'd uh, try to balance the wings a little bit, the usual stuff, balance the roll bars a little bit. We, we were playing around. One, one of the tuning features of the car turned out to be the length of the pull rod. And by changing the length of the pull rod, you, you would change a lot of things. You know, the ride height, the spring rate, the, the, the wheel rate, the, the amount of rising rate, how much bump rubber engagement. A lot of things would change with the push rod. Uh, or the pull rods, sorry. And uh, so we tuned a little bit and we didn't have a lot of time. And lunchtime came and we thought, well, we'll put Senna in the car now and we'll let him do some longer runs. You just want to get some mileage on the car. I think we ended up doing a hundred and something laps in the day. But I remember Senna, he, he was a bit more reactive, I guess, than, uh, than Prost. But he came in, did his first run, five laps or something, came in and he, he just sat there silent in the car it seemed like a couple of minutes but it was probably only 15 or 20 seconds you know and then um he just looked stunned you know and he, and he just said this car is gonna be effing quick <laughs> well, that was used his first comment yeah. <laughs> well, that was his first comment you know and i guess he could compare it directly to the lotus to the, lotus. the previous year yeah. same engine yeah because, of course, actually, Steve, that's a, that's a good point. When we talk about the influence of Honda on the success of this car, the engine didn't look so sharp in the Lotus of 1988. Senna out-qualified Piquet by more than, what was it, three seconds at the San Marino Grand Prix? Same engine. And it's not just the same spec engines. They were the same engines. Honda operated a pool 
of engines and you know an engine uh, engine go back and get rebuilt and maybe go to Lotus the next time you know uh, so yeah they were identical one interesting example Monaco we handily out qualified Lotus as usual a PK you know he's no slouch PK yeah. in a Lotus with a Honda engine it should be pretty good I think Lotus thought that we were getting special engines from uh, what they used to do with us is they'd, they'd run their engines on the dyno, obviously, and, and they'd give us the best performing engines for qualifying. Uh, well, you know, it might be one or two horsepower difference or something. And then for the race, they'd give us what they felt was going to be the most reliable engine, look better with blow-by or oil consumption or whatever. So they'd give us the most reliable, what they thought were the most reliable engines for the race. Us McLaren versus... Yeah. So Lotus... Yeah. Well, maybe right in thinking that they were getting the second... Tiny, tiny differences. So Honda came to us after qualifying and said, we'd like to put your qualifying engines in the Lotus for the race. And we just said, they're your engines, do what you want. So they did that. Honda put our qualifying engines in the Lotus for the Monaco race. And of course, we won quite handily. <laughs> so, so we weren't getting any significant, uh, no significant engine advantage. Uh, but we did have an incredible car, an incredible group of people that had designed it and built it and were racing it. Mechanics, everybody was good. And of course, the drivers were supreme. Ayrton Senna wins for McLaren Honda from Alain Prost. McLaren with their Honda engines and the two finest racers in Grand Prix racing today, bearing in mind their equipment, have really driven the opposition into the ground. Steve, what was it like to ride that crest of a wave in 1988, knowing going into every race that you should win it if everything, if, you, if yeah. the cards fall correctly? We'd, we'd been quite successful previously. You know, in 1984, we won 12 out of 16 races. And so there'd been quite a few years uh, But did in this that feel era. different? A little bit, yeah. You know, we'd always go to the races expecting to win. It... it it got to be a bit difficult because you'd go along to a race sort of expecting to win. So you'd win and you'd think, yeah, well, that's the job. That's what we're supposed to do. No big deal. You know, so there wasn't the sort of euphoria of a win like you might, they might expect. And, but that was, that was a special year and I thought it was great. And people say, no, you're making it boring. And, and um, I thought, well, I don't think so. I, I, I sort of thought it was similar to the America's Cup. You know, you get the one-on-one -on -one match race between boats, and this was like the two best drivers in the world in a fantastic car having, having this match race. And it didn't really matter whether the rest of them uh, showed up or not. They were going to have this fantastic match race. So. Oh, I'm definitely in that camp. It's one of the most <laughs> memorable seasons ever, isn't it? L let's talk about those two drivers. Where should we go first? Let's talk about Senna first, because mm. you've already mentioned Monaco 88. He's leading the Grand Prix. He crashes at Portier. What were his greatest strengths as a racing driver? I think it, there, it's several things, of course. There, there were just his ultimate uh, speed. You know, he was incredibly fast. You know, just otherworldly almost. I, I remember once um, at Monaco, for some reason, I was at a little bit of a loose end, and, and I went down to the... You know, the way the pit lane there, you can go down those steps, and, and you're right there where the fast chicane the fast entry the to the pool. swimming pool is i mean it's 
pretty amazing. They pushed the wall back, yeah, back then. then. But it's but it's still stunning even now. Well, and then it it was an Armco tunnel, and I remember, I mean, people always talk about things being stunning, and I say, well, yeah, but you're not really stunned, are you? And I I mean, I, I was down there watching him go through there, and I was literally stunned his commitment is what stood out well his commitment just the sheer speed going through there with you know i mean no margin for error whatsoever the barriers are just right there and it's just so fast you can't can't hardly believe it you know you feel like your eyes are playing tricks on you or something so there was the speed there was the commitment there was the dedication to the job Every minute of his life was dedicated towards winning those races and winning the world championship. You know, in the car, out of the car, at the track, at home, you know, studying things at home, working out, physical fitness, just everything. His whole life dedicated. We're talking about an era pre-data, really, compared Mm -hmm. to now at least. Absolutely, yeah. So what was his feedback like? His feedback was very good. You had to learn his vocabulary, but he would give you... What did he not use, understeer and oversteer? He, he, he did, but he had these words like um, the magnitude of the understeer and the oversteer. If it was slight understeer, he'd say tendency, you know, tendency of understeer. And when you would go through a debrief, uh, you know, we had the setup sheet and everything on a Formula One car is adjustable and so there's a blank to fill in. Caster camber, kingpin inclination, wing levels, damper settings, spring rates, uh, roll bar, anti-roll bar, you know, everything. And um, with some drivers, you could go into a debrief and you'd know, well, he's not going to change this, 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 and this, and maybe you could fill out half of it beforehand. With Senna, you couldn't fill in a single box. He would want to go through every one of those parameters for every corner. And every corner, he'd want to talk, what was it like? on entry, what was it like on braking, what was it like mid-corner, what was it like exit, what was it like change of direction. Every corner, every parameter, and then you could fill it in. And you'd go through that, it might take a couple of hours to go through all of that. And in the end, maybe you had changed several things and it'll help here and it'll hurt there. And you know, what's the, f- what's the summary then? What's gonna be best? And that'd be it, that'd be the end of the debut. But sometimes you would go through all of that and he wouldn't change a thing. But he would go through it all anyway, just to make sure that he was comfortable, that it was absolutely optimized and there was nothing more that we could uh, get out of the car. And a similar approach from Alain Prost? Or? Prost was maybe not quite that intense. Um, and of course I was Senna's race engineer, not Prost's race engineer, but he was also very good and he would always try to optimize the car and get as much as he possibly could out of the car, make the car do as much work as possible. So it wouldn't be sort of, oh, well, you know, that's good enough, I can carry it now and it'll be all right for race day. He he was always trying to get absolutely everything he could out of the car. I mean, there's a classic example once at uh, Spa this was where there was some sort of first lap incident and he bumped wheels with somebody and bent the car fairly significantly. and he still drove the wheels off the thing, you know. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, he, he was so good to work with. Nothing was too much trouble. He would, he would do anything he wanted to in testing and give it a good, 
Yeah, you try something weird and wonderful, you'd be perfectly happy to go out and give it a good hard five laps, you know, to make sure that uh, he'd given it every chance to to work, you know. So just a great guy to work with. And you know Alan's uh, nickname, The Professor. Yeah. Was he deserving of that nickname? Uh, yeah, I, I think at least in part he was. Um, it wasn't so much that he had a great say theoretical knowledge of vehicle dynamics or whatever he relied on the engineer for that he, but he was in, he was intelligent and he had very good memory you know and this is pre-computers and data and all of that sort of thing so but i used to carry around these two big you know those uh pilot sort of briefcases that they carry two of those full of every bit of paper that they'd ever generated you know every setup sheet every every lap time sheet everything because From he'd previous had, years, uh, yeah, and 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 you know, previous to that year, so you get halfway through the year, and he'd say, you know, this corner, it's a bit like the third corner in Brazil, or something, you know, and I think we used nine seventy five front springs there, and that'd be pretty good here. And I'd go back, you know, look it all up, yeah, yeah, <laughs> nine seventy five front spring, and he was right, that sort of thing, you know, that sort of memory, yeah, and I think being in the car. And have it right on the edge. It focuses the mind, and it just burns all that stuff into your, into your brain. You know, and so just just incredible his memory and how you know. Now, from the outside, the story that we were being fed certainly was that they became obsessed with each other. Is that a fair comment? I think that's quite fair. Senna, for example, used to say to me, "Look, we only have to worry about Prost. Yeah, the others aren't a problem." We just have to beat Prost. It's him and me, and that's it. You know. <laughs> so, I guess that borders on obsession. <laughs> anyway. And was it more from Senna towards Prost rather than per the other way around? Perhaps a little more, but uh, some people perhaps misjudge Prost. He, he's he's very competitive, iron-willed. You know, he's he's all there as, as as a race car driver. And I think, uh, I mean, I'm I was Senna's man. You know, I was his race engineer and all of that, but. But I used to work with Prost at tests and things like that. We had no problem with each other, you know. Well, in fact, he asked me to go to Ferrari with him. And we'll so, come on to that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when it came to driving a race car and being competitive, he was hard as nails, really. And maybe not quite, as I said before, Senna could be a little over the top, the, the Brundle thing, or, or later the Ferrari-McLaren crash, you know, the famous 19... Which no, year are you talking about? Oh, 1990. Yeah, 1990, turn one. Where Prost was Suzuka. in the Ferrari, and yeah, you know, so uh, Senna could be a little over the top. And, and in fact, you know, I'd, I, that incident, I'd, I'd sort of say, well, he kind of let himself down a bit, you know. But, Suzuka 1990. You know, but I'd say, you know, he's a friend, and sometimes friends do things that you don't agree with, but they're still your friends. Now, you, know? you say Senna was a friend what was he like away from the racetrack would you hang out no we didn't we we were very we were on very good terms but it was very professional and we didn't go and hang out you know i mean i'd i'd be at the circuit till 11 12 1 o'clock in the morning all the time so you know there wasn't the opportunity and he'd be back to brazil quite a lot and but if he came to the factory obviously not the mtc it was pre-mtc yeah. but would you 
go to the pub in the evening for a meal? No, no not really. We, it'd all be in the factory, and, okay. and so we'd have we'd have meetings, and he'd talk to the other people, you know, people in the fab shop, you know, uh, machinists, and talk to all the people, and uh, to make his presence felt and and make them feel part of it, you know, and all that sort of thing. So, so yeah, we were on very friendly terms, but it was always, you know, very professional and very little. Uh, Sort of what you'd call social activity, I suppose. And did you believe that it was always going to blow up that relationship? They were intensely competitive and they both wanted the same thing and so it was going to be hard. They were never going to be friends and it was always going to get more and more intense. And I think that that's what happened. That was absolutely normal, I'd say. And yet it never, this was a credit to all of the people at McLaren, it never divided the team. And in fact, even in their most intense periods, uh, it never affected the team. The team never split into two camps. Uh, I think everybody, very few exceptions, everybody realized they work for McLaren, they don't work for the drivers. And so it, it was just never a problem. Even in their most intense periods, the team still effectively functioned normally. Steve, I'm looking at you in the eye and I'm saying, so you were race engineering Ayrton Senna. Mm. If Alain Prost won a race that year, did you get pleasure from that? Or was it a little bit... I'm talking about you saying, oh, I, 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 no drivers I, bigger yeah. than the team. Yeah, I, I'm competitive. I, I admit that. And what I wanted was our two drivers to finish one, two in every race. Yours, yours P1. <laughs> Senna P1. <laughs> but, but yeah, I wanted us to be one too, but I much preferred my driver to be the number one guy. Now, it flared up. Um, people talk about Imola, 1989, the deal about not overtaking, etc. But probably there was an inevitability that it was going to blow up. Whether it was going to happen there, it would have happened somewhere yeah. else. Was there more that the team and Ron Dennis in particular could have done to keep a lid on it? Considering the intensity of the rivalry, uh, the, the, the team and perhaps Ron Dennis most of all, he was the one trying to keep the two under control. I think we did it, and Ron in particular did as good a job as anybody could possibly do. And as I say, the team actually functioned normally. Uh, they still worked together. They didn't speak to each other but they still work normally in debrief, so to speak, in this sort of roundabout way. If Senna had a question, he wouldn't ask Prost. He'd ask me, and I'd ask his race engineer, and his race engineer would ask Prost, and then it'd come back around the other way. So they worked together, but, but they'd be this sat roundabout in the same way. Room. In the same room, yeah. It's a bit like going through a divorce, and you can't talk to your wife. You have to talk to the lawyers, you know, and pay the money and all of that. So that's kind of the way it worked. Uh, they had ultimate respect for each other. It would appear they hated each other's guts, but they actually worked together to develop the car, even though it was in this sort of roundabout uh, fashion. Now, I'm very much hoping to get Ron Dennis on this podcast, but in case he doesn't come on anytime soon, mm. did he have a favorite? Did you sense that he was more of a Senna man or more, more of a Pross man? There was probably a little bit of that. It happened kind of all the time. If you go back to Lauda and uh, Prost coming, Lauda was really very distrustful of Ron, and, and he used to say to me, oh, you know, Prost, he's the new boy, he's quick, and that's the future, and Ron's going to favor him, you know. And 
one of the things that a race engineer has to do, he, he, I mean, he's obviously got to do the technical part of the job, but he's got to keep his guy on song as much as he can. He's got to be a little bit of a nanny and help with the mental side and all that. And so I used to have to say it louder, just don't worry about that. You know, okay, Ron's spending more time with, with, uh, on Proscar, but he's not contributing anything there technical. You know, you've got me, you've got your three mechanics, the team's big enough and has a budget enough that we can supply both of you with anything. I'm going to make sure that you never get shortchanged. You are always going to have every opportunity for all the equipment. You don't need anything else. You've got your boys here. Just don't worry about it. Just drive the car and, and we'll sort the rest of it out. And even the legendary Lauda sort of needed that sort of support in the face of his perceived uh, Ron Dennis favoritism repressed. So then you get this similar sort of thing happening. You know, Senna comes along, the quick new boy, and now Prost's the old boy, and he's sort of feeling like Ron's paying too much attention t to Senna, and so his race engineer has to give Prost those same assurances that you're not going to get shortchanged. And, and, uh, and so it, it went, you know, I mean, Ron did have a real soft spot, it seemed like, for Hakkinen. And Coulthard used to feel the same, you know. You know, Ron favors, Ron favors uh, Hakkinen. And I used to say to him, David, don't worry about it. You know, I know that Ron talks to Hakkinen on the radio and all of that. But uh, you know, you've got your boys, and you've got your race engineer. You've got Dave Ryan on the radio talking to you. You know, he's got Prost. You've got Ryan. Ryan's more tuned into the to the team and the car and what's going on. You're better off, like you are. Don't worry about Ron. You got Dave Ryan, you got your guys, you've got equal opportunity, just just don't worry about any favorites. It's fascinating, this whole side of the sport. And, it, and that all still applies today, yeah. doesn't it? I'm reminded of 2016, Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton. And yeah. The battle, the the intra-team battle that was going on at Mercedes. But yeah. Now you mentioned four world champions there. Lauda, Senna, Prost, mm. Hakkinen. Um, th those four, that little quartet, are they on a pedestal in your mind compared to all of the other drivers you work with? Well, a, a little bit, I suppose. I mean, God, when you think about it, you know, what you've just said, you mentioned those names and you think, yeah, how many world championships? And I was so fortunate to be dealing with people like that. I mean, having said that, and they are probably a cut up and, and some of the other drivers would probably agree, but Coulthard was, he's an extremely good driver and such a lovely guy as, as well. He is a lovely guy. I find him quite frustrating to talk to because now he sort of, it's, he, he sort of likes to somehow belittle his achievements yeah, I, I, as a driver. And I'm like, yeah. David, I was there. I saw these races. Yeah. I was at the racetrack. You were much better than you're letting people... He is quite self-deprecating. Yes, though, he is, and I get frustrated but, by that. Because uh, on his day, yeah, Coulthard yeah. was as quick as Hakkinen. And they're, they're on the, it's a pretty small difference, but it's kind of a consistent difference, yeah. I suppose. And, but yeah, Rosberg, another ace bloke. You know, he's a real one-off, broke-the-mold sort of guy. And, you know, once again, just a great guy to, to now, work with. were Senna and Prost a cut above everybody else I mean I'm including Hakkinen and Lauda there I would rate those three actually I'd, I'd include Lauda in the bunch I'd say the three are pretty much equal 
Uh, it's just that you'd say that when you're trying to compare different eras, they were close but still different. So Lauda peaked a little bit before Prost, Prost peaked a little bit before uh, before Senna, you know. Uh, Hakkinen, he was kind of an enigma. Um, once again, just a, such a great guy, a real caring sort of person, you know. You know, in a way, he seemed kind of soft for a race car driver. Yeah, you expect top businessmen, they're going to be hard as nails, and top race car drivers are going to be hard as nails. But he was really a very caring sort of person. And, and I think his strong points were not so much the mental side, not the professor sort of thing like Prost, but just his sheer sort of athletic ability to drive the car, the hand-eye coordination or whatever, not, not as good, say, as those others with working with the engineers. The engineers had to provide more of the story, so to speak. Uh, but unbelievably good. I mean, with that sort of handicap of maybe not being so technically oriented, the results he got were, were just amazing. Mika was, of course, performing at least a decade later, really, yeah. wasn't he? And yeah. so we, we're now ta starting to talk about data that the engineers yeah. could work with. So perhaps Mika might have struggled a little bit more in, in an earlier era, era yeah. but it was the sort driver, of made the, for the era he was well, in. Well, that's right. And so the, the driver was not so dependent. Uh, you know, you weren't so dependent on the driver, and, and it was more possible for for the uh, engineers to make up for that little bit of a shortcoming in the drivers. You say that Mika might have had a few shortcomings in terms of his feedback, perhaps, but he was willing to give anything a go, wasn't he? Yeah, and, and actually, probably the best example of that is, um, you know, we invented this system, which kind of unfortunately became known as uh, brake steer, when really it was sort of... Uh, you might call it a brake modulated understeer control device, but that's kind of a mouthful. And so it got sort of shortened down to brake steer, which made it sound like we were steering the car with the brakes, but really we were just trying to adjust the balance. Now, those cars in that era, you, you know... We're they, talking, what, 1998? Uh, yeah, yeah, about then, I think, yeah. Um, that... Uh, those cars, you got quite a lot of horsepower. Uh, you know, the tires were restricted, front and rear, but the rears were, were too small in a way, and the front's too big. So, you know, you almost always had oversteer, and they were grooved and all of this. So they were never going to be glued to the road. And Coulthard used to say he, he, he doesn't like understeer, but he cannot drive with oversteer. And I thought, well, you know, you got to deal with it, David, because they're just not going to be glued to the road. So this system was really made in heaven for Coulthard because you could set the car up with quite a lot of understeer and then you could dial it out. The driver could dial it out by how hard he pressed on this uh, extra brake pedal or sort of fiddle brake pedal. But he wouldn't even try it. Um, he couldn't cope with a hand clutch. Uh, he had to have the the foot clutch, he just got on better with it, maybe because that's what he'd always been used to. Uh, but Hakkinen was fine with a hand clutch. And, you know, you're, uh, I read somewhere you're 10 times more sensitive with your hands than you are with your feet, so it makes sense to have a hand clutch. But So we stuck it on a very rudimentary system. We stuck it on uh, Hakkinen's car at Silverstone, and uh, it, was, it was rudimentary. It was really just a, 
it was an extra brake pedal, which we had on the truck already, and it was an extra master cylinder, which we had on the truck already, and it was a, maybe a seven or eight foot length of uh, AeroQuip brake line, which we had on the truck already. So effectively, the system was free. Uh, and it only worked on the right-hand rear wheel, so only right-hand corners. And he went out and, and did one run with it at Silverstone, was instantly a half a second lap faster. First time he ever tried it. And then we developed it on from there and developed this little sort of manifold system where the driver could switch it back and forth to left and right-hand corner. Even then people thought, oh, you know, they got to switch it between corners. And I think of all the things that drivers change now on the steering wheel. They're worried about one switch, you know. But, but it was such an advantage that they, they soon uh, learned to cope with uh, changing this left, right. Yeah, and, and make us so flexible. That he yeah, yeah, he's happy to have a go. And he, he was, I saw a video recently on the net where he was waxing lyrical about how fantastic it was. You know, I, never, I, I never knew until recently, really, that he was that enamored with it. But, and of course, when he was much quicker than, than Coulthard, Coulthard got on board as well. And, but for him, we had to do a more, it was more complicated because you had to make room for a fourth pedal, you know, because... Pretty uh, cramped down there, right? Yeah, it was, was pretty cramped. Yeah. There was no room for a dead pedal, so they had to use the, they had to use the fiddle brake pedal also as their sort of, uh, I made it on purpose with a, with a quite a hard mechanical advantage because I didn't want to barely tap it and instantly have a huge oversteer. So they had to push quite hard on it. And that was on purpose, and it meant they could sort of brace themselves on the, on the fiddle brake, uh, kind of like they used to do with, well, in Coulthard's case, uh, kind of like he used to do with the, with the dead pedal. Steve, Alain Prost, said to you at the end of 1989, he says, come on, <laughs> let's, go to, let's go to Italy together. Uh, how did that come about? Well, it, Adelaide, he invited me up to his room, you know, and said he was going to Ferrari and he'd like me to come which was great compliment, of course. And he'd seen, I think, what was going on, you know, with the 88 car, and he, and he, you know, he knew where that came from and knew my capabilities and wanted me to come with him. Um, so a little background there. We, we had, uh, you know, Ron had um, come to me when we were, there was this period, 87, that sort of period where, you know, the normally aspirated engines were coming and Honda weren't going to have one available in time, so we had to do one more year with the turbo engine and then it was going to be the normally aspirated car, so we were, we were going to have to do the 4.4 the four and the 4.5, the turbo car and the normally aspirated car. And, you know, in fact, we did a, we did a MP4.3B with the Honda engine in it, the turbo engine oh, in the back of the four. Oh, yeah. And then, so we did the the four three. Then we did the four three B with the Honda engine. Then we did the four four, obviously with the Honda engine. And then we did the four B with the V ten normally aspirated engine and the five with the normally aspirated engine. And then we carried on and and did the six. I guess it was with the V twelve engine. So, hell of a period there. I mean, in eighteen months we'd done five cars or something. Total technical staff was seventeen people. Hence. <laughs> All the gray hair, you know. It, you it like was, pressure. You said that at the was, top. It was very high pressure, you know. Why Ferrari? Alain Prost invites you to his room in Australia. You, he says, come with me. But you'd been a McLaren man since I 1980. There were two things. Um, 
we'd done these two cars. Ron and I, I said initially to Ron, uh, you know, I, he asked me, which one do you want to do? And I said, well, Norman Asprey, cars of the future, I'll do that. And a few days later, he came back to me and he said, we've only got six months to do the turbo car and Neil Oatley has only just joined us. I don't think he's integrated into it enough to do it in six months. He'll have 18 months to do the four five, so I'd like to do that. And me, being a team player and a McLaren man, I said, yeah, yeah, I can see the logic, so okay, I'll do that. So then, the 4.4 having been a great success, uh, Ron wanted to carry that system on and do, you know, I do every other car. I'll do the 4, the 6, the 8, Neil will do the 5, the 7, the 9, that sort of thing. And, and I said, Does I don't... Does that work, technically? No, I don't Because think the so. lack of continuity. I don't think so. I mean, right. for example, you know, I had a longitudinal gearbox and Neil did a transverse gearbox in the 4.5, so we going to swap gearboxes all the time, you know. And the other thing I said to Ron, you know, I've just done for you the 4-4. You know, we've got a fantastic design team. You were dead worried that John Barnard was buggering off to Ferrari and what are we going to do? And I said to you, we can do it. And we did it. And I said, so I want to apply all, the, I don't want to split it. I want to apply all the brain power to all the cars. And I've just done the 4-4 with my team of guys who are brilliant. And, and I think I've earned the right to be the one in charge. And he, he wouldn't agree to that. And, and the other thing that's kind of interesting, I mentioned two things. And the second one is obviously much more minor. But uh, Gerard Ducruge, the Lotus designer, he's a great guy. We used to talk a bit in the pit lane. He was so friendly and nice, even though... My 4-4 was giving him a hell of a hard time. <laughs> and he used to say to me, Steve, don't let Ron get away with it. Make sure you get the money. <laughs> so, but Ron wouldn't put me in charge of all the cars and he wouldn't pay the money. And so I said, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm going to go with Prostor Ferrari. Was that an awkward conversation? Were you, were Pretty you, awkward, yeah. Did he perceive you as a traitor? I think he did to a certain degree, and he even came around to my house, and we sat there in my lounge talking about it, and he was saying, don't go, don't go. And he said, have you signed anything? And, and I said, no, I haven't signed anything, but I'm, I've told him I'll come, and I cannot, my own moral attitude or whatever, I can't back out of that. I've, I've told him I'm going to come, and so I will. But of all teams to go to, Steve, Looking back on Ferrari us, with the big rival in Ron's eyes anyway, weren't they? I know. All he had to do was, was put all you the brain power on with, all the cars. Oh, that was it. Not even you in charge. It was all the brain power on all, all the, cars. the cars. That's what I wanted. And it would have been nice to have a little more money. And, uh, he used to say, your rate card will increase. And so I can't pay more. You know, it'll destroy the pay structure and all that. And, but your rate card's going to increase. And... I said, yeah, my rate card will increase it, and Ferrari will pay it, but you won't. So, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's what happened. That's, that's the way it uh, turned out. And I think he did think of it as a bit of a traitor thing, you know. But all the time I was at Ferrari, I, I don't know, maybe once a month or something, I'd have a conversation with Martin Whitmarsh, and, and I'd come back once a month just to visit or whatever and Martin so did you keep a house in the UK yeah yeah I did it was funny Martin because when they were doing relatively well 
he'd say, well, you know, we don't need you. And when they were doing relatively poorly, he'd say, oh, we don't want to have to admit that we need you to sort us out. So then he, and then he still wouldn't hire me, you know. And, and eventually, of course, it got so bad that... Uh, 1995 bad, uh, which, was, to, which was properly bad. First year with Mercedes, yeah, wasn't it? They had to have me back, I suppose. But let, let's talk a little bit more about Ferrari. The different ethos to McLaren, how, how different did they do things? It was a lot different. It was chaos. Um, That's quite a strong word to use. Not strong enough. <laughs> <laughs> was it that bad? I mean, chaos. It was pretty bad. You know, uh, I guess the warning shot I had was from Harvey Possible. He said to me, you know, they're not going to let you do what you want to do. And I thought, well, why not? Surely that's why they're hiring me. But it was like that. You know, I go in and I give them this five-year plan. You know, we're going to do this, this, and this, you know. We'll try to improve things, of course, and we'll gradually improve, and, and we'll learn how to work together and develop this team spirit. And, you know, like at McLaren, we're... We, we, you know, McLaren, we, we liked each other. We thought in the same way, and we liked to see each other succeed. And, you know, there wasn't this blame culture and all of that. We, we, we really worked together. It was very much a team effort. It was almost family-like, you know. And, and uh, so we need to develop this team culture and work together and pull in the same direction. And, you know, we can win a few races the first year and the, then the next year, you know, we'll be even more competitive and maybe after three years we can challenge for the championship and year four or five, you know, maybe we win the championship. And, and they were aghast. You know, they said, no, no, we want to win the first race. We want to win the championship this year, you know. And I said, well, we have to change the way we work. I've, I've just come from McLaren where they do almost everything, almost perfectly. We've got to be more like that. We have to change. If you want to win... And particularly if you want to win championships, we have to change the way we work. They said, no, we don't want to change. You know, we, we want to win in races. We want to win championships. We, we don't want to change the way we work. <laughs> How's that supposed yeah, to work? Things are not going well, and I've only <laughs> oh, just started. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, they have the same department. Back then, Ferrari must have had the same departments as McLaren in terms of the design office, the aero guys. Yeah, yeah. So what well, was they, they had more. Yeah, they had an engine department too. You know, that, that was the incredible thing. They're building the chassis, they're building the gearbox, they're building the engine. I found it fascinating. I could wander out into the machine shop and they'd be making crankshafts and, you know, that, and they'd be machining engine blocks and heads and, you know, never seen that before. <laughs> but what was not gelling? What was not working? They've got the money, they've got all the departments in place. There were clearly some clever people there. It, it was the chaos factor. I, I, at the time, I don't know if you remember, but about that time they, there was this thing called biorhythms. Do you remember there was like these three sine wave things and they'd be all out of phase and if they all came together and they were in phase, you'd be having a good day. And uh, Ferrari was kind of like that, only there was instead of three, there was about 27 things. And, and when they'd all come together, you know, you'd have a good day or maybe even a good two or three days or something. But... What too it too emotional? It was it was probably too emotional, not not sort of this cold, hard, unemotional approach to things. You know, I'm reminded of Jackie Stewart, and uh, he he wrote an article years of uh, years ago. He wrote this article called "Fear Is the Key," and I think as a racing driver, you need to have your adrenaline, you know, 
right up here. And people do that in various ways. You know, Nigel with the adulation of the crowd and Nigel against the world and, and all of that, you know. And Stewart said for him, it was fear. He tried to wind himself down so that he was cool, calm, collected, dispassionate, non-emotional, but he needed the adrenaline. And the adrenaline came from the fact that he was scared. You know, it, it frightened him. And that's scared where the emotion... Scared of hurting himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah the danger or, or of it. fear of failure, or that, maybe a bit of both. And that's where the adrenaline came from with him. So they needed to be more cool, calm, collected, unemotional. Um, it, it was quite strange, you know, I mean, the engine department. McLaren and Honda, Honda was on the other side of the world. And I think Honda and McLaren worked better together than Ferrari chassis and Ferrari engine, who were in, you know, the next room sort of thing. So... Uh, but that why? Why? I, I'm trying to get to the bottom of. We're <laughs> well, talking 1990 Ferrari. You've got Alain Prost at the time, a three-time world yeah. champion, driving for you. Prost used to say, for example, I spend as much time at a test working with my engine engineer as I do with my chassis engineer, developing the drivability, say. And they didn't have an appreciation for drivability. We'd go away to a test, and Prost would say. This, 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 and this issue on the drivability, you know, and uh, I'd come back and talk to the engine chief about that, and honestly, he would say, "Well, it's not like that on the dyno." I can't believe my ears, really, you know. That, that's how little regard they had at the time for for drivability, and I'm thinking, yeah, drivability makes no difference to the dyno. It, 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 the dyno doesn't get upset when it snaps into oversteer and there's a concrete wall uh, just over over there. You know? So, so there's that aspect on the on the engine side. What about a V12? Talk me through the merits, other than the sound, of course. Oh, it's just fantastic. Is there any sound better than than a V12 Ferrari doing? I can't think of one. Eighteen or nineteen. Yeah. RPM. Yeah. yeah. It's just yeah. Unbelievable. Well. This is interesting because uh, let me let me tell you about Honda. Then we had uh, we had the V6 turbo, then we had a V10, and then we had a V12. And when they were contemplating the V12, they said to me, "Because see, this is before I'd gone to Ferrari, and and now we're talking about the next. You know, we had the V10 car, now the V12 car is going to be me. Uh, and what do you want?" And I said, "Well, what's got more power?" And they said, "Well, V12's got more power." And what are the downsides? It's bigger, it's heavier, it's got more friction, it's less fuel efficient, you have to carry more fuel. And I understand, give me the horsepower, and I'll put pressure on my guys to make the chassis lighter so that that won't be a disadvantage, and we'll, we'll push ourselves extra hard on the packaging side, uh, you know, so that the extra fuel capacity won't be too much of a problem, and let's have the V12. Ferrari was always going to be a V12. <laughs> you know, so. Just because. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And thank God, because it was such a glorious uh, sound and, uh, and a fantastic engine, uh, really. But So, you know, they, they had uh, drivability problems that need to be sorted out. They had reliability problems. When I first arrived there, I said to him, you know, you've managed to get this complex semi-automatic gearbox heavy sort of unit and you managed to get the car down close to the weight limit you must have been fanatical about weight saving and so on I said now reliability the cars aren't reliable enough and uh, you've got to be fanatical about that we need to get on top of the reliability so we used to go away to a test 
you yeah. know, we were doing a lot of testing in those days, almost test between every race. And we would do, one driver or the other would do a race distance every day. So that was the sort of level of commitment we had to, to getting on top of the reliability. Because we had gearbox reliability problems, we had engine reliability problems, you know. Was, well, then you take chassis development. You know, our sensitive drivers that we've talked about with uh, McLaren, I mean, springs, front spring on a car typically was, <laughs> front springs uh, typically back then were about a thousand pounds per inch, say, and we had them in 25 pound increments, 975, 1000, 1025, that's two and a half percent. That's, that's within the tolerance level uh, of, of the springs. But guys like Prost and Senna could tell the difference, you know, if you change the spring by 25 pounds in a thousand, you know, two and a half percent, they could tell the difference. So Ferrari, I said to him, we, we want to try stiffer front springs. And they said to me, oh, we tried stiffer springs. And I said, oh, when did you do that? And they said, oh, a couple of years ago. <laughs> you know, once again, I can't hardly believe my ears. I said, well, we'd, we'd like, we need, so we, we want to try 50 pounds softer front spring. And they'd say, we don't have that. We have 1,000, 750, 500, you know, 250 pound increments instead of 25 pound increments. And process is pointless. You just jump right over the sweet spot. So, you know, that's what we got to make some. We need more springs, finer increments. This will take a couple of months. And of course, it's because they'd introduced this uh, torsion spring thing, and they were complex torsion springs. You know, it was uh, it was a it was called a uh, compound spring, I think, where you know one bit it's a tubular bit that goes down, and then it's welded to another bit that comes up through the middle of that, and they both mount in the same place, and then the top of it is hammer forged into this mushroom sort of thing with castellations that, that that's how it locates into the car. And all the various processes, the welding, the, the, the machining, the grinding, the shop peening, the, you know, all of those processes, it just meant that it, it took a couple of months to make new springs. So we were just stymied while they, they went through that whole process. And we made a new wing once and, and they had a fantastic, uh, one thing that McLaren didn't have at the time, they, they had a calculations department. They were well ahead on finite element analysis and all sorts of calculations. And these guys would be squirreled away in a dark room with their computer screens, you know, and, and doing a fantastic job. And so we had a new rear wing and, and we'd done, you know, the, the laminating engineers, the carbon engineers, they'd done a, as you do, they'd done a uh, layup manual so they knew exactly what materials to put in and what fibers in what orientation, and it's all there laid out in the manual. So we go off this test and test the new rear wing, and you can see it visibly on the straight. It's just, it's just bending, you know, and we're staring our hair out. What the hell's going on here? What sort of mistake have we made? And then finally the head of the composites department, the, the manufacturing part, you know, the laminating people, the head of that department, been there forever, yet Ferrari, you know, and he puts his hand up and says, well, we didn't actually make it like the drawing, we just did what we thought was best. So that's the sort of thing you're dealing with. And uh, it was fantastic, actually. You know, it was a brilliant experience. 
nothing quite like winning a race at Ferrari. The, the outburst, the euphoria, the, the bringing the church bells in Maranello and, you know, all of that. It's just a fantastic experience, the outpouring of emotion, and, you know. But, God, on the other hand, you'd have this thing, you, you'd like their cooperation, you, you'd like them to contribute, and you'd like them to try to make things better, and, or, or at least just leave it alone. You know, you're going down this path, and just let you go down the path. You'd kind of like them as a first step to maybe point out the potholes, you know. There's a pothole there, maybe dodge around that one. And that'd be, you'd like that, that'd be great. But some of them would be not just not pointing out the pothole, they'd be digging the potholes, you know. So that's the sort of thing you open. And I used to say it's fantastic, but it's kind of like the dream and the nightmare all happening at the same time. And you gotta remember, I went there on my own. Uh, John Barnard, it, he used to go along very, you know, he'd change teams and he'd kind of take several of his key people with him, his little posse of designers or whatever, and so he had a better chance of making it a success. But I rather naively just went there on my own. and uh, So it was incredibly difficult. Steve, having said all of that, the 641 of 1990 was a good racing car. It Alan Prost got close to winning the world title. Yeah, yeah, I know. Doesn't mean it was easy. <laughs> the base car was pretty good. You know, John Barnard had, had created a, a good design. But what I'm talking about, the reliability, the, the drivability of the engine, the inability to set the car up properly because you didn't have the right springs to work with, all of that sort of stuff, that had to be developed. And it was that development, the chassis set up, the engine set up, uh, all the testing for reliability, it was all that sort of thing that made it begin to come together. We still had reliability problems, and I didn't really think we were going to win the world championship, but we were going to have a pretty good go at it, and it was going to be a close-fought thing, you know, down to the wire, but I thought inevitably we're going to come up short and maybe we'll be second, but it's a hell of a good first effort, and now we can build on that, if they can finally get their heads around the idea that you have to work logically and cool and calm and dispassionately and eliminate the emotion and all the histrionics and I guess is that what Jean Todt absolutely saw and absolutely Ross Braun saw and it was only when that they would bit. Ferrari would keep changing the people they brought me in they brought Prost in and it didn't work and so we changed the people again and what finally happened is when you look at that Todd comes and he establishes this firewall. You know, there's the whole press thing. Uh, I'd arrive, you know, we'd be on a flight to a race, and I'd arrive there, and you'd see the senior managers arriving, and they got a stack of newspapers like this. They got to see what's being said about them in the press, and I'd just think, oh, for God's sake, just throw all that shit in the bin and ignore it, please, you know? And I think that's what Todd did. He just isolated the team, particularly the design team. He took all the flack. He, he extinguished all the fire and he just let him get on with the job. So you get Ross Braun coming there with Rory Byrne and they had some technical electronics wizard that came along as well. And Taz, <coughs> Taz something. Chapsky. Yeah, that one. And uh, all that made a big difference. They come with this group of people, Schumacher and, and, and that great, you know, Braun and Byrne and, and Zapsky and, and Todd. And he did exactly what I'd told him to do in the first place. Develop a plan, 
carry on through the years, gradually making progress. How many years was that whole crew that I just mentioned, Todd, Schumacher, Braun, Byrne, Zapsky, it took them four years to win a world championship, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, they came or, close, or but it did. They, they all got together in 96. Yeah. Braun came a little bit later, didn't he? But still, it was until 2000. And they had, in the end, which I quite like, legendary reliability. You know, <laughs> in that yes. You got to finish the races. Yeah. You know, and it's speed sexy, I suppose. And if you can gain another half a second and all that, it's fantastic. But, but if the thing breaks down on the yeah. track, it's the old adage. The reliability is kind of boring, but... Yeah. but to finish first, you, <laughs> first you have yeah. to finish, isn't it? That's my, my friend's got a company, and, and he shortens that. He just says, to finish first. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like yeah, that. Yeah, I quite like that too. <laughs> but anyway. So um, that, that gives you a little bit of yeah. the flavor of Ferrari and why it was difficult, and they just didn't have the patience to put in the hard yards for four or five years. It was all but, about tomorrow. Yeah. And, and what the headline in Gazetta de la yeah. Sport was going to be. Yeah. I guess. That's and Ultimately, it was too much for Alain. And he, didn't he describe the 91 car as a tractor at some point? Or, or a truck or, or something. Or a truck or something. Which was bad. Yeah. You know, you, you've got to show due respect. Tenner is trying to go through on the inside and it's happened immediately. This is amazing. Senna goes off at the first corner. But what has happened to Prost? He has gone off too. Well, that is amazing, but I fear absolutely predictable. Yes, and that makes Ayrton Senna world champion this year. So Ayrton Senna uh, now with Prost not finishing the race quite clearly. He's out of his car, stuck in the gravel pit. That, I'm afraid to say, is the end of this year's Drivers' World Championship in favour of Ayrton Senna. There's Prost running back, but uh, it's all over for him. I've got two questions, two more questions about Ferrari. First of all, that collision at Suzuka 1990. Yeah. What did Prost say when he got back to the pit lane? Well, he, he really, he just sort of shrugged his shoulder and shoulders and sort of obviously pissed off, but kind of like, what do you expect? I guess it's the inevitable center being sent in. You know, he was so wound up the previous year when Prost turned in on him and uh, felt that he was robbed. You know, Poles should have been on the other side. And, and I, I think, right, you know, he knew going in, if Prost ended up ahead of him, he was just going to take him out. Which and do you think Alan went into that race thinking, I, well, he thought, I've got to get ahead of him because I've got to finish yeah. ahead of him. But do you think he was wary of something like that happening? I Senna think he probably was out? a little wary, but what are you going to do? You know, he got a better start and he got ahead of him. Are you going to think, oh, shit, what if he runs into the back of me? I better, I better lift before the corner and let him go through, you know. So then where are you going to pass him? You know, you let him into the lead, and then after that, any time you try to pass him, he's just going to crash into you. Do you think that was the most stressful season of Alain Prost's working life with you? Yeah, I think it was pretty stressful for him. You know, for all the reasons I've just said, he was right at the sharp end of all that chaos. You know, he's the one in the car trying to cope with all that. I, okay, I was trying to cope with everything back at the factory as well, but trying to cope with all of that when you're, when you're the guy, you know, you got all those, Jesus, I don't know, back then it was eight or 900 people uh, and all that money and, the, and you know, it all comes down to 
two drivers in two cars on a race weekend and it it's uh, it's got to be pretty intense uh, and obviously he'd had a lot of experience of dealing with that through his through his career but i'm sure it was difficult and frustrating and eventually that frustration came out with his truck comment with the truck comment uh, before the end of the season mm. of course he was removed wasn't he uh, yeah. prior to the last race of 1991 now look 1992 I want to talk to you about twin floors. <laughs> yeah. Um, the F92A. Yeah. Seems like, w was that a design that on paper was genius, but just never quite, why did it not work in reality, I guess? There were a few reasons. Um, just a little bit about the history of how that happened. I wasn't an aerodynamicist, but I, I used to ask the aerodynamicists questions. You know, one of the questions I asked them was, Barnard had done this car, you know, the 639, 4041. Uh, you know, that, that car had these tall, skinny r radiator inlets. So I'd ask the, I'd ask the aerodynamics, so, so, you know, is it different than anybody else has got? Well, you know, why? And they'd say, well, you know, there's a couple of reasons. It, it, when, as the car goes faster and faster, eventually it can't process all of the air through the radiator and you get this slow, you know, the, the air kind of comes to a halt or slows down as it approaches the radiator inlet and that slow air spills underneath the car and that's bad. And also the air is hotter down near the surface of the track. So if you make it skinnier at the bottom, you've got less air going underneath the car and less hot air going in into the radiator. So that's why it's good so i said well okay so instead of tall and skinny like that why don't we make the top a little wider and the bottom even narrower well what do radiator inlets look like 20 or 30 years later kind of like that so we did that you know and and things like that i'd say to they 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 said you know the the top upper corner of the radiator uh, inlet seems to be very sensitive and i said well okay stick some stuff in there see what you can do you know and they come up with this sort of spherical looking top of the of the radiator inlet you know things like that and i said you know one of, i remember one of the aerodynamics sent to me the front wing end plate you know it's very sensitive the the upper forward corner of the end plate and i said well explore that then stick some stuff in there maybe a little spoiler or a little flap or something and then of course you see what developed subsequently with all, all you know the complexity of uh of front wings uh so that, that was quite a good uh, interchange uh between the aerodynamicists and me and trying to develop uh, develop things so twin floors taking this to extreme the next thing i said was well what about if we raise the inlet up a little bit and then maybe make this little channel and then carry that channel around, you know, a little sculpted out bit that goes around the outside of the radiator and then back into the Coca-Cola. And so they did something like that. And the, then there was a draftsman named Lulia, and he, he, they loved to sketch cars and all that because they're so passionate about it. He'd drawn this sort of strange car that had a horizontal radiator up high, you know, shoulder height almost, with, and ducting the air through the bottom and out the top. And... and uh, I showed that to Mijo, who was the aerodynamicist at the time. I said, I know it's a bit radical, but what do you think of that? So then he took it the next step, and my little channel going out round the radiator, he raised the radiator up and opened, and, and the little channel became, you know, all the way into the monocoque so that you now had this twin floor thing. So there was probably three basic reasons why it was 
a problem. There was all this extra body work, which created extra weight. There were extra joints, which inevitably caused a little bit more drag. The center of gravity with radiators full of water up high is a bad thing. You know, later at McLaren, when they had uh, a lot of computer power and I had them doing parametric studies, what does it do if you have more power, less power, more drag, less drag, more downforce, less downforce? And one of them was, what happens when you raise and lower the center of gravity? And from that we learned that if you can lower the center of gravity by 10 millimeters, it was on average around, you know, around an average drag, it was three-tenths of a second, just by lowering the center of gravity by 10 millimeters. So that raised the center of gravity. And most important of all, it was the active ride era. And Mijo was convinced that we were going to have perfect active ride. So he could ignore pitch sensitivity because that'd be all taken care of with the active ride. And he could pursue L over D at the cost of, of uh, pitch sensitivity. And, and I said, well, I think the active ride is going to be pretty good, but it's not going to be perfect. And so we can make the car a little more knife edge. You, we can narrow the envelope of setup compatibility, arrow setup to, to mechanical setup, but we can't ignore pitch sensitivity altogether. But he ignored it altogether, and the car was just horrendously pitch sensitive, and, and the active ride just wasn't good enough to, to cope with it. If you'd put the twin floor concept on a more sophisticated active ride system i suppose williams were the benchmark at the time yeah could it have worked it, it may have worked or with the center of gravity you still had the center of gravity yeah. thing to contend with and that's pretty sensitive 10 millimeters 10 mil, for three tenths of a second yeah. yeah so maybe you'd have to have done the work we we had a little argument at mclaren um, Henri Duran was the aerodynamicist at the time. He wanted to do a high nose, which was very popular at the time. We're talking mid 90s oh, now, aren't we? Yeah, I'm back, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm back at McLaren, 95, 6 sort of era. And he says, it's a few points of downforce more, you know, the raised nose. And I said, well, it's not for free, you know. And he said, what do you mean? Because he only ever thinks of the aerodynamics. I said, well, you know, you're raising the center of gravity of quite a few components on the car and. I said, but no, you know, there's no problem. I mean, no point in you and I arguing. And this is the way I approach all engineering decisions, really. I said, it's not a problem. We've got the computer power. We've got the circuit, circuit simulation program. We'll just run the numbers. You know, we'll try it high and low and see what the arrow effect is and see what the center of gravity effect is. And, and the numbers, we won't argue. We'll just let the numbers tell us what the answer is. So we did that. And the answer was, a low nose was better. <laughs> so he conceded, said, yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. We'll, yeah, he's a technical person, we'll, we'll, we'll go with a low nose. Then. Steve, it is so fascinating talking to you. I could, we could literally do it all day. <laughs> but of course, you leave Ferrari. I guess when you have a difficult car like the F92A and all of the headlines that come with it, it becomes an untenable situation, well, it, does it? it, it, it yeah, it became a problem. And, we had inherited um, Jean-Claude Mijot. Uh, I don't think he necessarily agreed with my assessment of why the car was, uh, was bad. And, and they, um, it was problematic, and, and I felt like I was starting to become a little bit more marginalized than they were talking more to Mijot. He was, he was the latest guy they'd hired, and you know, you buy a new dog, you've got to let him bark, I suppose. And 
Uh, and then they started talking to Harvey Postlethwaite about coming back from Sauber, and you know, him and Mijo were kind of the dynamic duo, and and uh, so we eventually did this deal to just swap. And, you know, I'd go to Sauber, and and uh, Harvey had come back. Now, to when you've worked for McLaren and Ferrari, who at the time were the two biggest guns mm. in Formula One, is everything else? just child's play i don't mean to i don't mean to belittle it but but you know when you've done the two biggest teams were you tempted to just walk away from formula one rather than go what was it it was sauber it was jordan yeah i know sauber there was was jaguar racing as well wasn't there yeah yeah i probably should have just stopped but sauber was strange they were a little bit like ferrari because you go there and 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 i took uh, luigi mazzola came with me brilliant guy uh young engineer at the time at Ferrari, Prof's race engineer. And um, so he came with me and, and uh, it was kind of like Ferrari, I'm telling him, you know, you want to win and you want to get better and so we have to change the way we work. And and, and it was like, no, no, you have to adapt to us. We're, we're Swiss and, and we know everything, you know, that sort of thing. So so that was, that was difficult. And the Jordan thing was kind of fun, actually. Totally different experience. Everyone says that. Who's well, been to Jordan. but it was, I think at the time, 94. 94 was quite good. We, we, in 94, actually, we had the best year that Jordan had ever had up to that point. And, and a car, a nice little car, great, great little car, really. And, and I, I think, I always remember they had a budget of $30 million. And we spent about $40 million, But So, did really well for the, that level Just out of, of interest, budget. at the time, so Jordan are spending... What, a budget of 30? What would Ferrari have had at the God, time? God, I don't know. Probably 150 million or something. I, I don't know. Right. I didn't get involved in the financial sure. side because money wasn't a problem. <laughs> 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 Seemed to be lots of lira about. But anyway. So a, t- a small team. Different challenge, you know, and trying to do the best you can with... It was difficult, you know. I mean, you got to remember back in those days, there was only points, one through six. And, and you kind of had, there was three major teams back back then. Um, and if they all three finished, you know, that was the first six. And if you could finish seventh, you were doing very good. If you lucked into a point once in a while, you know, it, it was a big deal. So I thought it was quite good when they expanded it down to 10 places because it took some of the total domination of the points away from the big three teams and meant that some of the lesser lights could at least score a few points. and and sort out the pecking order from 6th through 10th, you know, or 7th through 10th, I guess that'd be. So Jordan was a happy time. Um, Ferrari was a frustrating time. I, I don't mean to be putting words yeah, that's into, your, a fair into, your, into your mouth, but mm. where, of all those teams, where were you happiest? Uh, oh, I think McLaren. You know, it was uh, it was my first team, you know, your first love and all of that. and. I'm forever grateful to John Barnard and Ron Dennis giving me the opportunity to have a go in Formula One. And I think I repaid him pretty well, you know, with the 4-4. And, um, you know, even when they were first getting started, uh, I, I'd called up John Barnard in 1980 looking for a job. For, I always wanted to do Formula One. And, and he said, you know, he was doing this new project and he wanted a skinny monocoque but stiff you know for the ground effect tunnels 
innovative new materials and me having worked at Hercules and used carbon fiber in rocket motors. Um, I said to you him, oh well, oh, well, that'll be carbon fiber then. And he said, oh, uh, well, yeah. Uh, but he said, we can't find anybody to make it for us. And I said, I think my old colleagues at Hercules would be interested in that because I know they're interested in trying to expand the use of carbon fiber outside of aerospace. And to have a global platform like that, Formula One cars all around the world, you know, high tech and global, uh, I think they'd be interested. So I contacted them and, and they were. And so Ron and John went to see them and did the deal and, and Hercules laminated the first carbon monocoques for McLaren and later we brought it in-house. But uh, Hercules continued to supply us with all the materials, you know, the resins and the fibers. And so that was a pretty good thing. That's another pretty good thing I, I did for McLaren. So finding them a manufacturer for their monocoques, taking over for Barnard when he left, and doing first the 4-3, which was, well, it only finished second in the World Championship, well below McLaren's normal standard at the time, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, it of course, was Williams won that 87 well, championship. Yeah, yeah. But With it the was, Honda engine. Oh, we better have one of them. But it was good enough. That car was good enough to attract... Senna and Honda, so not bad. So, so what is your proudest achievement in Formula One? I, I think the 88 car. You know, the, the fact that it was last half of 87, design the car, and then all through 88, develop it and, and work with Senna as his race engineer to win his first world championship. You said at the very start of this chat, that, that you thrived on pressure. What does 20 years at the coalface do to you? How exhausting was Formula One? Did you get to 2001 where you were with Jaguar? And Did you get to that point in your career and say, I'm just... Is, is burnout something in, no, that we should I, be talking about? I, I didn't think I felt like I never felt like that. As I say, I quite like the pressure and it really felt like you're doing something important. You know, it's on TV and if you screw up, it's there for the world to see and the, that sort of thing. It, it focuses the mind, I think in the pit lane as a race engineer. I used to say, you know, I'm a little bit afraid of heights, but I can't resist this temptation to sort of look over the edge and your heart beats a little faster, you know. And I used to think the pit lane was like that. It's like walking along the edge of the cliff and not falling off, but knowing that the risk is there that you could screw it up. And do you miss, even now, 20 years since you walked away from Formula One, do well, you miss the adrenaline rush? How hard is it to get it out of your system? Yeah, it's, it's, it's in there still, you know. It's like a virus that's hard to kick, I suppose. And, and of course, Steve, you're a racer. <laughs> or it used to be. I, I, are you still doing it now in your 70s? No. I started racing carts uh, when I was 13. Uh, and that's kind of what got me interested in Formula 1 in the first place, because the carts were little road courses. And, of course, that was Formula 1. And... And uh, so I started that in 19, my first season was 61. And of course in 62, Road and Track Magazine, one issue, the, the, the title article was Chapman's Tubeless Wonder, which was the Lotus 25. And I was just smitten and decided I wanted to be a Formula One designer and tailored my education accordingly. So it really all started in 1962, only took me 
what, 19, 18 years to get there. I so Chapman was the inspiration? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like for so many engineers in Formula One? Yeah, yeah, I mean, he was pretty incredible. I mean, obviously he had his faults and, you know, the cars were probably too fragile, that sort of thing, but uh, the innovation and just the just the elegant simplicity of the Lotus 25. Well, let's talk innovation. What do you think has been the greatest single innovation in Formula One history. I'm not talking about necessarily something from now or even from your era. It could be from Chapman's era. What? Well, you could consider a few. And I suppose that that monocoque car, yeah, yeah, there's still monocoques today. You know, so that would be kind of a landmark car, you might say. You know, the, well, a lot of these cars are Lotuses, I suppose, but... The Lotus 49 with the stressed engine and, you know, that's kind of a landmark. And the, the 78 and the 79 with ground effects, they're all Lotuses. <laughs> but anyway, Chapman. But, uh, yeah, so that's kind of a landmark thing. Renault and their turbo engine, that, that's kind of a landmark thing. And McLaren, first flat-bottom cars with the Coca-Cola, you know, still using Coca-Colas today. That's kind of a landmark car and now the current engines I, it's a shame to see them go and I suppose they're too expensive and all of that but Jesus these engines they're just or powertrains I guess you have to call them they're just incredible you know thermal efficiency approaching 50% and just marvels of engineering and I really take my hat off to those engine engineers that have come up with such a phenomenal uh, design package you know they yeah, are just, in, just incredible. You know, the rest of the car, I mean, I don't know, they're too big and too wide and too long and too heavy, but I suppose to incorporate all that engine magnificence, uh, drivetrain magnificence, it requires a bit of extra weight. Steve, it has been an absolute joy speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time. It's lovely sure. to come to your neck of the woods here, <laughs> here in, in Woking. I'm interested that since you stopped Formula One, you, you came back to live near McLaren. Well, so I, yeah, never I, I'd sort of, yeah, I'd sort of established my life here, I guess. You know, you know where to buy your groceries and get your hair cut and that sort of thing. But and uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, I'm a racer. I raced Formula Fords in America. I came here and raced Formula Ford 2000. I bought a 1982 Van Diemen Ford 2000 in 1982, and I've still got it and still race it. That same car? Yeah, yeah. The F, you know, the, the, when you go along to an HSCC meeting and they say, well, have you got papers for this car? I said, oh, the only papers, I mean, were the readies I handed over to, to um, Ralph Berman. To Ralph Berman. <laughs> and they said, well, what about the history of the car? I said, well, I'm, I bought it in 82. I still got it. There you go. That's the history. <laughs> Are you so, still racing that car now? Yeah, I raced it last year a few times. My, my, I, I go to America three or four times a year. My friends built this Datsun 280Z that we race in endurance races over there. Typically, you'll have a eight-hour race on Saturday and a seven-hour race on, on uh, Sunday. So with four drivers, you know, that sort of thing. And what a fantastic thing. So you and just a bunch of mates just going. Yeah, ahead. yeah. And, and, you know, even right now... Um, I'm helping my mate to Ian Rowley. That's where I maintain my RF82, and and we're we're uh, rebuilding a Lotus 17, which we hope to race uh, this coming year. And another 
another friend, he's got a, this is quite an interesting car, it's a 1000 cc Formula 3 car, a Piper Formula 3 car from 1969, which has a, a malite monocoque, which is the two thin skins of aluminium with the balsa core, you know, and so we're trying to restore that as, as well. And right now I'm quite tempted to buy, uh, you'll laugh at me, but uh, it's a, it's a Fairthorpe Electron. I don't even know what you're talking about. The, Fairthorpe Electron. Electron. Well, you have to Google it, but they only weigh 500 kilos and they've got 12-gallon fuel tanks. So they, you know, it's a, so I'd quite like to restore that and turn it into a, to a race car. So, well, uh, one thing is certain, once a racer, always a racer, <laughs> Steve. Um, look, thank you very much for your time. It's wonderful sure, to catch up. Sure. Thank you. I could listen to Steve for hours, especially when he's discussing that memorable 1988 season. The MP44, the drivers, even the pre-season testing at Imola. Everything about that year leaves me on tenterhooks. It was wonderful to have you on the show, Steve. Many thanks for your time. And in our back catalogue, you can hear from others caught up in the Senna-Prost rivalry, including Alain Prost himself and Julian Jacobi, the man who managed both drivers at the same time. And please remember to send in any thoughts or stories that you have on Steve. Did you go to a race in that special 1988 season? Maybe Monaco? Were you a Senna or a Prost fan? Let me know. Which brings me on to what you sent in after last week's episode with Kevin Magnussen. He's a hugely popular driver, is K-Mag. And let's start with this from Rahul Aurora. Just amazing. Kevin's comeback reminds us that taking a sabbatical can fill us with fresh motivation and can also provide us with a new perspective. Glad to see him start a new chapter, both in his personal and his professional life. All the very best. Well, perspective is so important, isn't it, Rahul? And Kevin has that now. I'm convinced he's a better racing driver for it, too. Uh, thank you for getting in touch. And what about this from Vegetable Tears? Fantastic interview with K-Mag. He must be the first driver I've heard talk about being part of the team and actually believe it. A year off seems to have done K-Mag a world of good, although I'm sure he's been a dude. Well, thanks for that, Vegetable Tears. Yes, Kevin has always been a dude. And there is no I in team, is there? And let's end with this from Mads Arp, who says, Kevin is so honest and a passionate racer at heart. He's known not to give an inch on track, and yet when he talks about Louise, his daughter Laura, and his dad Jan at Le Mans, he sounds so happy and settled. It's great to have him back where he belongs in Formula One. What a Viking comeback. Yes, Mads, I couldn't agree more, and I particularly enjoyed hearing Kevin's memories of racing with Jan at Le Mans last year, and the fact that Jan is still so quick. Well, thank you to everyone who wrote in. I read all of your messages. I'm just sorry that I don't have time to read all of them out here. And before I go, please make sure you check out the latest episode of the F1 Nation podcast. Davide Valsecchi joins me, Damon Hill and Natalie Pinkham to look ahead to the Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix at Imola this weekend. And Davide thinks for some drivers, it could be a season-defining race. Search your podcast app for F1 Nation to hear what he has to say. And while you're there, follow F1 Beyond the Grid as well. And why not give us a rating or a review and tell your friends and followers about the show using the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. 
Thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>